Welcome to Films in the Wilderness, a six-week limited podcast series during Lent 2021, brought to you by the Diocese of Southern Ohio. I'm Carl Stevens. And I'm Jed Deering. And with us today is our guest, the Reverend Craig Lemming. And Craig, I was hoping you might be able to introduce yourself and tell us a little about yourself. Thank you, Jed, and thank you, Carl, for inviting me. Um, I'm Craig, and I serve as the Associate Rector at St. John the Evangelist Episcopal Church in St. Paul. Um, I'm, as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm from Zimbabwe. Um, and I've always had a fascination with films um, and how films connect with my Christian life. Would you like me to maybe elaborate on that? Should I just jump right in? <laughs> that's how, that sounds great. Yeah. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that connection. Yeah. So straight after high school, I needed to work in order to earn money for my, my air ticket to fly to Boston to start my undergraduate uh, studies. And um, I worked at a movie theater. Um, and one of my jobs was to work with the Zimbabwean, I think they were the censorship board where we would watch all the films that were going to be uh, on in the cinema that weekend. And there would be sort of editing that happened of any scenes that the, uh, that they didn't like, or they wanted edited out. So I got to see all the movies unedited and for film um, as a theological text for me, I think it has something to do with this very ordinary thing, this film uh, it's sacramental really. An ordinary thing like a film is infused with the light of Christ, literally an illumination of something that is profoundly transcendent, almost beyond words, that is is expressed through color, through um, music, through movement, uh, gestures, language. And it it sort of brings what God means or, or a proclamation of something holy or divine viscerally alive in the mind and sort of transforms you as beauty always does. There's this sort of transformation on a molecular level and you encounter something so profoundly um, true and good and beautiful. And I think for me, that's why film as a theological text is incredibly powerful, um, a wonderful way to share the gospel really. Uh, with people who may or may not be involved with any religion at all. You know, uh, Craig, I worked in a movie theater in high school too. Jed, I don't think you did, did you? No, you... I'm the odd one out here. Yeah, <laughs> I have to say my experience was quite different from yours. Um, it was mostly like a American blockbuster type movie theater. Okay. And um, probably the biggest moment was when the platters, it was these old platter projectors, they broke at one point, and so I had to spend the entire afternoon spinning the movie Tremors by hand, just kind of moving it wow. through. I, I don't think Tremors is a very good Christian text. <laughs> a lot of Christ is going to come into the world from it, but I'm glad we have that in common. That's really joyous, and right. we, we both have that experience. Right. Yeah, that is, yeah, that's beautiful as well. Like, I think for me that you talked about it kind of opening our minds and I think about that opening of, yeah, the mind and the heart and the way that our, our our body connects in with film and how often I like feel and notice my body in a movie, whether it's like sitting up on the edge of the seat, it's starting to slump, it's starting to feel the tears or the laughter come in or the tension and the tightness and, and just this um, surrender 
that happens when coming to a movie and what it means to kind of give yourself over. <laughs> and like you said, the possibility for transformation when we give ourselves over to something beautiful, uh, which I hope that people find the movies uh, in this series to be that uh, in their own life and their own experience. Absolutely. Well, let's start talking about the movie of this week, A Hidden Life, Terrence Malick's film from, uh, what was it, Jed, 2019? Yeah, 2019. Okay, will you give us a brief synopsis of the film? Absolutely. So we pick up uh, with the life of a uh, young married farmer and his wife, uh, Franz and Fanny Jagerstatter, and they are in uh, the Austrian mountains. They're in the Alps, uh, a small village uh, where they live and they farm outside of. Uh, and at this point, uh, World War II is ongoing and it's beginning to encroach in on their idyllic hamlet. You know, once again, in a Malik movie, we have kind of an Edenic beginning here um, in this beautiful space. Uh, and we pick up with this young couple as they're having children, um, carrying on with their lives, kind of making uh, their simple existence with a life of farming, with livestock and wheat uh, and other crops. Um, and uh, Franz is called up uh, early in the film, but is not uh, ended up being deployed into battle. Um, and returns home. Uh, after returning home, he has a deeper sense and a better sense of what this war is all about and is beginning to question and trouble uh, why they are being involved in this, why they are involved in this fighting, why they're involved in this war, whether or not it is a right or a just thing um, to participate in this. And the more that he questions, the deeper his feeling starts to rise and his conviction begins to rise that uh, he cannot go forward and join in the battle. Uh, and he becomes a conscientious objector uh, to the war. And the movie follows and chronicles how that, what that means as a sacrifice uh, in that time and that place, um, the way that relationships start to splinter um, and ultimately what that takes from his own life, his family, and his community as a result of his choice not to, not to fight in the war for Nazi Germany, not to swear an oath to Hitler. And I think we should let the listeners know that we will probably be spoiling this movie as we will every movie that we talk about. And uh, it should come as no surprise that uh, Franz Jägerstetter at the end of the movie is executed for his resistance. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are a lot of Christ-like parallels going on. There are a lot of themic things to talk about. Craig, as, as Jed was describing the movie, do you, do you think he left anything out? No, I think that was a, a perfect analysis and, and a, a great um, summation of, of how the plot of the film unfolds. Um, of course, you know, the thing with the Terrence Malick film is that it's almost not about the plot. <laughs> it's about these contemplative moments in between these moments of action and this balance of contemplation makes it a really religious experience this this conspiration you know we're sort of breathing in and breathing out um in a in a meditative state uh with with this wonderful filmmaker um it's it's liturgical really um more than a linear plot it's it's sort of a, a cyclical contemplative exercise absolutely yeah 
Well, will you read us the gospel portion for uh, this week's podcast and this week's uh, movie? Certainly. A reading from the gospel according to Mark. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, Let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Thank you. So I was particularly hit by the line about the the chief priests and what was it again? I don't have the gospel ahead of me. The scribes and the elders. Let me, sorry, just uh, close my, let me just go back. Rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Yeah, so as I was thinking about the movie, there's a character in the movie, the mayor of this Austrian hamlet that they live in, who is obviously a Hitler supporter from the very first. And you would think that would make him a not-sympathetic character, and he's not a sympathetic character. And yet, one of the things that is interesting about the movie is that even though he argues with, sometimes violently, uh, Franz Jägerstetter and ringleads, in a way, the rejection of of the village towards Jägerstetter's entire family. It's quite clear that that he loves Franz Jägerstetter at the same time, and that so do all of those villagers, that one of the reasons why they are so vehemently opposed to his actions is based in wounded love, that they, one, feel rejected by him, but also that they're afraid for him and afraid for his family, and they don't know how to express that fear. Um, I don't know where to go with that, but I'll lay it out there. Well, Carl, I, I think that connects with Peter in this gospel, rebuking Jesus out of probably that same fear-based wanting to love Jesus to say, you know, I'm rebuking you from telling us that that you are going to undergo great suffering and die. Um, and, and, you know, Jesus responds to that with his own rebuke. But I think Peter, my, my second name is Peter. And so I have a fondness for, for the apostle Peter and how he is so um, quick to jump in with both feet into a situation without really thinking through the consequences of his decision. But sort of that visceral response that Peter makes um, makes me really like his authenticity in the moment um, that he just sort of jumps in uh, spontaneously and responds or reacts 
um, almost unthinkingly. I think that that does come from a place, a place of love and concern, which we maybe see in the mayor, uh, but also in the priest in the film. I think um, this, this fear for Franz and Fanny's family, and there's that tension in the final scene where um, he's sitting across the table from his wife, and I'm sort of anticipating the first time I saw the film, you know, that she's going to try and say, I love you. And because I love you, I want you to, to sign the paper and I want you to just come home, you know, and be, be my husband, be the father of our children. But he, that, that love, that devotion that she has um, is sort of the opposite of what the mayor and the priest were trying to do. Uh, it was sort of a, a love for the integrity of France, uh, being a Christian uh, no matter what as a witness. So I think there's a connection there with Peter and the mayor. Yeah, and this and the connection as well within those characters of just what it meant to be seeking to preserve the thing that they loved, right? The mayor preserving the town, preserving the town and the people that were, you know, a beloved part of it. Um, you know, what it meant that the, uh, that the uh, priest, you know, Father Furthauer is, seeking and trying to like preserve this family and to preserve the church and uh, those that he the bishop that he goes and visits that is speaking about how they're already burning you know uh, bell bells down to make bullets and he doesn't want to give any reason for them to come and take more than already is being taken and and there's a spirit of preservation of some of things that are beloved and good um, that are there that that take hold and I think that do drive and that give us an, a certain empathy for these characters, even as we do start to identify with them as with the gospel writer here with Peter of, of get behind me, Satan, you know, of, oh, actually the one who is, is in the way of the, the choice that's the choice of integrity, but you understand why. Yeah, and oddly enough, that even plays out, there's a scene where a funny goes like journeys for two days to go to this fort to essentially meet with some kind of commandant. I, I don't know if we're ever told really what his military rank is. And he's been ignoring her letters and her phone calls. And she, so she goes essentially to pin him down and he rejects her entreaties. And yet when she leaves, we're given the scene of him on his own in this kind of existential crisis, right? <laughs> like screaming to the wind. And you can see, I mean, many people in the German military at the time were trying to preserve what they loved, which was the German military, which I don't think is that lovable a thing, but, you know, we, we try and preserve what we love. Um, so you could see this person also like Maybe it's somebody who capitulated to evil out of a out of a loving desire to preserve the thing that gave his life meaning and purpose. It's a it's a morally difficult film in many ways. It seems simple, but it's not. It, right. So that's that theme of of preservation. Also, the scene with uh, the artist in the sanctuary when I think he's restoring and he's preserving the old frescoes. Um, of these scenes of Jesus, where he says, you know, through his art, he creates admirers of Jesus, sort of Christ in the abstract. Whereas for Jägerstetter, you know, for Franz, creating followers of Jesus in, in the concrete decision um, to, to stand up for what is true and good and beautiful. 
Um, I think that contrast of this artist preserving things. And I think the artist asks at one point, you know, who will paint the true Christ? Um, and, and I think it's, it's through the concrete lived example of this saint, Franz and, and Fanny, you know, both martyrs of the church, that they paint Christ in the concrete, in their actual lived decision um, for Jesus. Uh, and, and that idea of preservation and Peter and the mayor and the lawyer too. I think the lawyer comes from a, a deep place of concern. Just sign this paper, you know, and you'll be free. Um, and then Franz responds with, I'm already free. <laughs> you know, I just, that moment of um, the temptation really uh, to, to, to have your life saved and the gospel saying, no, you have to really give up your life in order to save it. And I think yeah. what, what, it, what this movie does and captures so well too is, you know, I think we all like to look back and, you know, at times to go, oh, we would, we would not have participated in what occurred in Nazi Germany. We would not, if, if we would, we would have stood up against how Jews were treated. We, you know, uh, we know we can say that deeply, you know, we, we look at the gospel and we go, if there were that really that opportunity to like, to lose our life, to take up the cross, of course I would do it. <laughs> um, and the way that this movie actually like fleshes out, you know, what, what that means. What does it mean to not choose, not just self-preservation, <laughs> but also when you choose to lose your life, we are, we are not alone. No man is an island. <laughs> and we see the deep connections that Franz has here, you know, none more fully and truly than with Fanny. And, um, and the way the movie seems to imply also that his deep moral compass and his love for God came even deeper as he became connected to Fanny and connected to her father, um, and that this was something that had grown in him as a result of their relationship. And now, like you're saying, Craig, for him to actually to live out and to put boots on the ground with living out what it meant to follow Christ and to make choices as a Christ follower was going to actually mean losing the life that he had built with this woman and with her family and the family that they had established with their three children. Um, and just the way that, again, like you said, this, Carl, this is a very morally complex film, <laughs> that this movie actually challenges, I think, deeply the conception that we would have that we would make the righteous choice. Well, and Fanny is such an interesting character because there's, it's, this is a movie where nothing is said explicitly, right? It's very subtle, but Fanny has to undergo as much of a passion as, as uh, France does. And part of it is from her mother-in-law who lives with them and who essentially shuts her out, gives her the cold shoulder, seems to blame her for France making his choice, which implied to me that maybe he wasn't much of a Christian before he married Fanny. Yeah. At least his mother-in-law seems to think so, right? So if we're, if we're wondering who made a disciple of whom, I think it's all coming from Fanny. Who radicalized you, right, would be the question right now that we would have. And what was his wife? <laughs> exactly. And yet her faith at a certain point seems so simple. Like before he's actually called up mm -hmm. and takes that momentous step of refusing to swear an oath to Hitler, which gets him arrested, you know, she's saying things like, God loves us, God will take care of us, it'll all be fine. It's a very almost naive sense of, of being under the sheltering wing of, of God. 
which does not play out. You know, she's that expectation has disappointed. And yet I never got a sense that her faith was waning. Even there's even a scene where she tries to go to church mm-hmm. and she appears in the doorway of the church and the other congregants are sitting in the pews and they all turn around and look at her. And she hesitates and looks at them and they look at her and then she leaves. Right. So there's this way in which her faith community that taught her these things has now rejected her. Uh, and her faith is changing. It's metamorphosizing. But I don't have a sense of it being lost. She gets the final word of the film. She gets um, at the very end of the film, you know, to speak not in concrete faith terms, but in this to this kind of mystical understanding that there is something else, there is something more waiting for them, even though she is no longer able to completely name what it is. Yeah, there's that sort of um, Isaiah language of being repairers of the breach that, you know, someday this will all make sense. Uh, That final word is so beautiful from Fani. And I think the sacramentality of their marriage is something that comes through beautifully. That scene at the beginning when they're planting potatoes and you can see the gold wedding bands in their, their hands that are, you know, digging in the earth and putting the potatoes in. And there's such an, a visceral erotic love between these two people who have uh, made a commitment, you know, in their marriage vows for better or for worse, richer for poorer, uh, in sickness and in health. You can actually see that sacramentality in that beautiful scene of such joy, such um, real interdependency. And I I think that sacramental nature of their marriage, that that idea of sacrificing for the other, um, again, you know, that even though they were tempted, I think, away from leaving what they knew in the institution of the church and, and sort of the comfort of the village, the comfort of, of the home and family, um, not compromising their faith for those comforts, for really sacrificing all that they had for each other's integrity as Christians is, is definitely a theme that connects with this passage in Mark. The other thing about the film I, I found really interesting is that this one of the ways in which evil works in the film is it forces everybody's good intentions to become secret. Mm. Everybody's, except for Franz, who is, uh, and, and Fani, you know, but there are scenes where like the the miller mm-hmm. gives extra grain to Fani while she's being ostracized by the entire village. Yeah. Or there's a moment where she goes to visit a poor widow who nobody has gone to see for weeks and brings that person food and company or a scene where her cart gets knocked over and that same widow comes and puts a, helps her pick up. But it's all secret, right? It's all on the down low because you can't be good in that system publicly. And I think it ties in with that George Eliot where the title, A Hidden Life, comes from. Yeah. That it's in those, those small hidden moments of love, radical love, radical, unconditional love, dangerous love, really, that is hidden from from the public eye, um, that that's truly where um, there there is something sacred and holy. And I think that's that's where you're right, Jed. I mean, I'm more with Peter 
trying to say to to Jesus, nah, I need to rebuke what you're saying, like, because I love you and you need to continue leading us. Um, I would probably not have been, you know, one of the righteous ones who would have said, yeah, you know, I'm I'm with Franz here because I've got so much on the line. Uh, because, I mean, this is an agrarian culture, you know, the interdependence of your village was everything. And to be, yeah. to sacrifice that, um, especially like when you're thinking about a single woman with three children, yes, you know, with her sister's assistance, but that's just um, a witness to, to what it means to sacrifice everything and surrender everything to Christ, uh, which is inspiring truly inspiring about these hidden these hidden lives where people put everything on the line because of what they knew to be right and true does anyone have the full quote in front of them of from middle march oh george Eliot. i think i did i saved this somewhere hold on yes the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. That's the George Eliot quote. And then of course, the, from the epistle to the Colossians, for you died and now your life is hidden with Christ in God. So yeah, that and hidden... That that life, that life, you know, being, uh, being hidden with God, you know, I think to me that taps back into Carl, what you were mentioning in some of Fanny's last words and just that, uh, that last line that she says at the end of oh, all questions will be answered in time. <laughs> and this hope that, um, that those who've been righteous are hidden with God, that answers are hidden with God. There's hope hidden in God that will, that is yet to be revealed. Um, and I think with, I think with her journey, I was so struck by, um, as you mentioned early in the movie, she has a, a line speaking kind of directly into the camera to us while she's speaking to Franz saying, you know, we will have faith, you know, God will provide a way and an answer. And then later we pick up with her, we pick up with her story after Franz is imprisoned and things are very bleak and she's attempted to make visits with no responses. And essentially the criminal justice system of that time is as unkind with answers uh, as it is for people today. And, um, you know, and she, you hear her praying now and saying, I don't know where you are, or I can't hear you, something to that effect, uh, to ultimately but ultimately that doesn't stop her generosity with others and her giving. And so whether it is that she helps the widow, she helps the miller, um, she helps the person who comes by her garden, uh, even as she's been unable to sell her crops as normal. And um, she gives to all these and, you know, by the measure she gives, so it's given back to her. You know, and there's these little moments of the faithfulness of God to her through others, even as she continues to be even in her doubt even in her questioning um and that to me was incredible incredibly moving to see that she didn't turn inward or bitter even as i put myself in her shoes in her conversation with the widow and she says you know nobody's been to see her in two weeks and wondering if fanny is sitting there visiting wondering if this will be her life uh as Franz's life is taken that will she will she one day be this widow, lonely for weeks on end, um, 
And yet, even after that moment, her final scene with her husband before his execution comes after that moment. She still, like you said, Craig, looks across to him and uh, gives him this ultimate act of love of his, her support uh, for for the choice that he's making based on his convictions. It was incredibly incredibly moved by by her arc. In fact, we shouldn't uh, forget to just to celebrate the actress who plays um, Fanny, Valerie Pachner, who I want to see in so much more after this film. Yeah, she's fantastic. Yeah. What did you two um, make of the the Franti meets in prison? Um, uh, Valdland, played by Franz Rogowski, um, almost like this hair, uh, holy fool type character. He meets him first uh, at a training camp they're at, and they're just playful. They're just messing around, like balancing rifles on their fingers and things. And then they find each other again in prison. And I've been I've been trying to make sense of him as a character does he is there a parallel in the gospel or who is this person (laughs) that's a great question you know i i really loved the aspects of love that are expressed in the film you have this erotic love between franz and his wife fanny you had the love of his mother you know a, a mother and a son's love and then, of course, you have the father and the mother's love for their children. But I love that they included two other aspects of love in Franz's story in that, that companionship, that friend, um, the idea that companions on the way, you know, there's, there's, there's the um, prisoner who sort of is criticizing Franz for, for maintaining his faith in Christ and has sort of become this, this apostate. Um, who who rejects the the potentiality of a companionship. Um, But then there's this holy fool who, you know, whether he's he's fully on board with with following Jesus the way Franz is doing or not, there is this mutual reverence and respect, this joy of just the gift of friendship. And I'm thinking of St. Ored of Riveau here, this idea of spiritual friendship and companionship, um, particularly between people of the same gender. Um, that I think comes through beautifully in that friendship, but then also the young man who is executed just before Franz yeah. at the end, it's it's no more than five seconds, but you see them share a kiss um, yeah. on the bench because their hands are bound and they, they cannot embrace, they can't express their affection, but they they are able to kiss each other on the cheek. And it's almost this revolution of, of Judas's kiss that betrays the Christ is almost redeemed in this moment. If we're thinking through the passion narratives, um, you know, as, as we're in Lent, thinking through preparing for Holy Week and the Triduum, that that kiss in the film redeems that, that, that kiss of Judas into something as sort of this acknowledgement that you are human. Everything in this system that has dehumanized you, that is going to actually snuff out your life. I want you to be affirmed that you are sacred, that you are holy, that your personhood is something that is divine. And there's a kiss before that execution takes place that I just think is phenomenal. Um, And I think it it ties to this particular gospel passage, that idea of sacrifice, again, this, this kenosis, this outpouring of love in all of these aspects of our life, you know, as a child, as a sibling, as a husband or father, you know, a spouse, depending on whatever, you know, your gender expression is, there there are aspects of love that always require that sacrifice. 
um, that I think that's where it ties in with the gospel. Not sure. That's what I'm thinking about the holy fool. <laughs> I think that points to one of the really powerful things of, uh, about this movie is it is impossible to say which of these characters is, is the Christ figure. It's as if cumulatively they're a Christ figure, but no one of them alone uh, equates to Christ. Yeah, it's there collectively the body of Christ <laughs> in this and in this moment. And I think too, Craig, uh, as, as you speak so beautifully there, to also talk to the friendship of uh, Fanny's sister mm. who comes and lives with her and helps to care for the farm. And even though they are outmatched physically by the work that is before them, the way that they continue to carry on and the way that she loves and supports and is alongside her sister, even as she disagrees, um, that it does not stop her, her deep care and her affection, her care for the children. Uh, And again, you see these beautiful moments of physical touch and love, which maybe also all of us are a little starved of right now because of the (laughs) pandemic and these expressions. So they're speaking even more, but you know, as she lays with her sister in the field now embracing her head on hers, Um, You know, in these moments where you you get to carry each other as well through through your touch, through your affection, through familial affection, when so often in so many movies, the family is the place of conflict. And it certainly is here as well. But to show also that um, deep love that can be there between brother and sister, uh, even in biological family and the way that that can carry each other uh, through through the tribulation. And I think. Uh, that that picture with the sister's friendship for Fanny there was quite beautiful also. Yeah. Thank you for saying that, Jed. I need to jump in here with sort of a Naomi Ruth connection there. That idea uh, of the two yeah. sisters clinging to each other because you it's not explicit in the film, but you can tell that the young farmer, the young man who was, I think, betrothed to Fanny's sister, I think that relationship is compromised by Franz's decision um, that 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 betrothal is broken, which actually for this for the sister of Fani, I mean that was survival again in an agrarian society. It was survival through marriage, and that was compromised. And yet, much like Naomi and Ruth with the Boaz situation, <laughs> you know, there's there's something about the two sisters clinging to each other, and and yes, everyone in the village rejecting them, completely outmatched like desperate, I think in one of the letters, we could really use you, Franz, you know, yeah. when she's writing, when she's just saying that just the struggle of trying to do life without another set of hands um, is, is just incredibly excruciating. Uh, but the sisters love, um, yeah, thank you for saying, yeah, there's also that element uh, that comes through. And I think seeing the two of them attempting to plow the field and thinking what it means when Jesus says, you know, um, you know, my burden is light. <laughs> and and yet it was not, it was not light. Um, and, and yet they, and yet they carried on, you know, and, and what do, what do we do when the burden isn't light? You know, what do we, what do we do when we, we lose, we lose our life for the gospel and we're not finding it on the other side of what was lost. Um, and that the way that this movie doesn't shy away from the fact that there aren't quick answers or easy answers to that is, is something that I love deeply about it. Well, and lest the listener think that um, this is a kind of poverty porn movie, 
It's really not because the, the, as you mentioned at the beginning, Craig, Malik's camera captures so much beauty in this natural environment, you know, so here you have people struggling and you are balancing that in your mind with the beauty of the Alps around them, the, the trees and leaf, the animals, just, it's so gorgeous that, you know, you have to hold both things at the same time, you know, that this, this life in this world is beautiful and joyous and this life and this world is grievous and hard. Like the movie never upsets that balance. It's always there. And even in prison, in his letters, he's writing back, he's speaking of Franz is often writing to Fanny about what he imagines she's experiencing or knows she is with the change of season. And that's another place where this movie certainly ties liturgically, like you said, Craig, like we're in these moments, these seasons and cycles there, uh, even that are called or tied with their agrarian lifestyle. And, and yeah, the beauty that also comes from their hard work and the harvest and the way that when they do invest deeply in the land, there is a great return. Um, And there's, there's beauty in that. And even the beauty that we get early in the movie before relationships are so fractured of that shared life with the earth that the community has in working together and caring for the earth together and bringing a harvest with one another. And um, it is quite like idyllic at the outset. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think um, there's a scene when, when Franz is in prison and everything is going badly, like the psychotic guard is beating him up and kind of trying to mentally torture him. And he's in this tiny little cell and like his, his sink has been broken by this, you know, it's in shards from the scar. And yet suddenly there's the sound of a bird singing and he immediately goes to the window to look out. Uh, which brings me to like, I think one of the things I took away from this movie the first time was the idea that one reason why Franz and, and Fanny are so able to do what they do is that they have a way of seeing the world, particularly the natural world, that infuses them with a sense of the divine. Like they are, you know, they're not mystical per se, but they are, um, to use a Latin phrase, um, subspecies eternitatis. They are under the aspect of heaven at most times, even in prison, even in like these hardest of moments, and that that is the sustaining thing. Yeah. I think, you know, riffing off of both of what what you've both said, um, this idea of, the fifth gospel, uh, sort of the, the proclamation of creation itself as a gospel uh, that that is continually being preached in this film, particularly with such beauty, and that idea of the saturation of the incarnate Christ in everything that Franz and Fanny have dedicated their lives as farmers to be, uh, as their vocation, their calling uh, to be in right relationship with the land and with each other and with their neighbors um, and with God, you know, uh, and loving God in their neighbor as this, as themselves. Um, and the contrasts, I love that you said the sound of birdsong. I'm an audiophile. So the music, I hope we get onto music at some point, but the contrasts of natural sounds, you know, Malik is so good. You can hear crickets chirping. Whoever was there, their sound person for this film. I mean, phenomenal, the the sound of water rushing in the river or wind blowing through the leaves or through the grass or when they're they're, uh, using their scythes to harvest the wheat, Um, the sound of birds, the sound of wind, 
it, it's just incredibly beautiful. And then you contrast that with the sound of engines and, and the planes of the Nazi, the Nazis, you know, the, what do you call them? Whatever the, the Nazis call the, that's it. Yes. And then the, the, the industrial sounds of engines when they're going, when they're going into Salzburg or into Berlin and sort of the, the cacophony of, of this noise pollution. And then this contrast with this Edenic, you know, the sound of natural beauty, the symphony really um, of God's creation that, that is continually on, you know, just lavishly offered to the world if you're paying attention. Um, and I love that contrast in how they used sound in the film. Yeah, Especially I think as they enter into and out of the prison as well, you get the clanks, you have the footsteps on these metal steps and you the door shutting and it's just, yeah, the, the distinct difference in how, um, and, and, and that in prison we're going through and we get these continual long shots of these doors being shut and closed. And yet often, often when we are back in the village and there's a shot happening inside, inside of the church, the house or the barn, the door is open light is being let in and out. There is a sense of there's a freedom that's there. The sunlight is infiltrating the space. There's an openness to relationship and coming and going uh, that is cut off and closed off. And so the way that you get that, yes, in sound and in visual. And, and Craig, uh, your educational background is also uh, as a scholar in music. And yes. I wonder maybe... Yeah, would you lead us a little bit into a conversation around music? Because that is not a background that I have at all. Um, and while Carl Carl has a wonderful voice for leading worship, I don't know that that's his uh, his background either. So, I'll try and set myself some boundaries so I don't go too far off into the weeds, Jed. But yeah, gladly. Maybe three three examples that really struck me uh, as far as the the soundtrack or the the film score goes is the use of of a, at the beginning, you have these terrifying images of Hitler and the Third Reich, and the music that was chosen is from Handel's oratorio, Israel in Egypt, this idea of the people of God being enslaved by Pharaoh. And you can mm -hmm. obviously see the connection there through music of God's people in, in, in enslaved in Egypt by Pharaoh with, you know, Hitler and the Third Reich and the Jewish people. Uh, there's that just the gravitas it gave me it gave me chills because as a child i really didn't read I, I was i was born and raised roman catholic by the jesuits but i also sang a lot in choir and i learned all my old testament stories through handel's oratorios i didn't really read the bible as a child i would listen to the handel oratorios or sing in them and that's how i learned these stories so that gave me chills because it, it brought back this idea of you know, God who liberates and, and Israel in Egypt by Handel. I mean, the text is really from Exodus and the Psalms. And that comes through right at the beginning. The other point uh, where music is used in a really powerful way is when Franz is, is going off and, and Fanny is explaining to the children, your dad is leaving and he's going on a journey. Um, and then you hear the, the opening of the St. Matthew Passion by J.S. Bach. Uh, that opening chorus, this massive chorus uh, for two orchestras and two choirs uh, that opens the St. Matthew Passion, sort of this epic journey into the Passion story. And you can see the parallels in France. You know, this, the, he encounters a Pilate figure. He encounters a Peter figure. 
there's so many parallels in the passion narratives and you can, that's, that's set up so perfectly with Bach uh, and the St. Matthew Passion. And then lastly, you know, as I sat weeping through the credits um, at the end of the film, in the, I went to the cinema twice to see it. Um, and I was, you know, you know, the guy at the back when all the lights come up and, you know, people are trying to sweep the popcorn and they're like, sir, you need to leave. And I'm the one just <laughs> weeping in the, in the seat. But in the credits, there's this gorgeous moment where um, it's the Czech suite by Antonin Dvořák that, that, that comes through. And, and Dvořák, for me, I'll pull up the quote. He, he manages to capture the power of simple folk and the music that simple folk make that is absolutely exquisite. This is why Antonin Dvořák absolutely revered, loved, um, had such reverence for the Negro spiritual when he came to the United States. He was like, the Negro spiritual is the essence of what America means at, for the entire country, regardless of your race. That is the essence of America in the Negro spiritual. And he, he has this great quote about folk people and folk music. And the Czech suite that bursts out in the credits um, speaks to that hiddenness the hiddenness of folk life and folk music, where it reminded me of when Fanny and her sister are collecting firewood and they're singing that duet in kind of in a, yeah. in a folk canon way. Just beautiful, yeah. beautiful. And, and then the folk dancing, I think it, it's mem when he's remembering his wedding day um, yes. and there's folk music and folk singing and dancing as they're celebrating. And Dvořák wrote, the music of the people is like a rare and lovely flower growing amidst encroaching weeds. Thousands pass it while others trample it underfoot, and thus the chances are that it will perish before it is seen by the one discriminating spirit who will prize it above all else. The fact that no one has yet arisen to make the most of it does not prove that nothing is there. So when he uses Dvorak's music, sort of illuminating, revealing these hidden lives of deep, Christian sacrifice and love, um, much like folk music, these hidden gems of, of duets that are sung, you know, as you're doing your chores, um, that folk people, even, you know, from the world that I come from in Zimbabwe, there's a rich heritage there where songs are taught from generation to generation, never written down. It just lives in the spirit of the folk people um, as they sing their life, you know, sing through their chores in life. Um, and I just love that that comes through in the score as well. That idea of folk music being so powerful. That's fantastic. You know, um, I was sitting here thinking, I like music, but I, I am nowhere near as good at listening to music as you are, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. I'm a nerd. For, for music, music is the only thing I was really good at as a child. So I just spent my life literally singing in church. <laughs> no, it's an utter gift for you, to, for you to share your your wisdom and your knowledge with us. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, we are coming to the end of our of our time together. Um, any any final thoughts about the themes of the movie or the gospel? Well, then let's. We have as a closing question: uh, Would you bring this film with you into the wilderness? So. If you were going on a retreat, or not a retreat, but brought by the spirit into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and you had a chance to grab off your shelf, uh, you know, a number of DVDs to take with you before the spirit really moved you out there, is this one of the, is this one of the films that you would bring? Most definitely. Jed, do you want to go first? 
Go for it. Okay. I would definitely bring it. I think this idea of the temptations of Christ uh, when Christ is in the wilderness, all of the temptations that Fani and Franz are conflicted with, where it would be so much easier, you know, to take the save your life, don't sacrifice it for God. Um, I think if I was going to go on a wilderness journey, and this film is is so incredibly packed, every single scene, particularly the contemplative ones, um, between all of the action that that tie the the plot together, those contemplative moments I think would be a wonderful way to retreat um, and to be reminded what it means to choose the tougher the tougher road, which will lead to a more abundant life. So yes, I would definitely bring this on retreat. Yeah, I think uh, if anything, you know, if I'm being driven out to the desert and if I'm, you know, uh, if I'm being driven out into what would be a desert without much water and green and to, to be able to have these beautiful visuals of the Alps and the waterfalls and the rivers flowing and the mountains and, and just to be reminded that there's a world beyond the wilderness that I was trapped in. I think that the visuals alone would cause me to want to bring it with me. You, you almost feel you know, lost and immersed within that space. Now, some of it might be thanks to the fact that my um, graduation gift from my wife for seminary was a, a projector and a screen. So we had a big, very large screen set up on Sunday night for the rewatch of this. Uh, it takes up our entire living room. And um, so, you know, I feel very immersed in the movie right now, still from that experience. So yeah, that and to all, to all the things that Craig says, absolutely. Yeah, I would too, mostly because I, in the second watch, I saw so many things I didn't see in the first watch. And just from this conversation today, I I realized how much I missed from the first two watches. I feel like um, it is a slow contemplative movie, which might make it seem that it's, uh, that there's not a lot going on. But in fact, it is intricate beyond belief, right? Like you could probably watch it 10 times and still be discovering new things uh, as you go. So as a liturgical film, something that you come back to again and again and again, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you listeners for listening to Films in the Wilderness. Our theme music is provided by the great Brianna Kelly. And we are so grateful for the support of the Diocese of Southern Ohio, and especially for the work and support of Emma Steinmetz, Christopher Richardson, and Jason Odin. Craig, it was a great pleasure to be with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Carl. Thank you so much, Jed. This was just a joy and a privilege. Thank you.